Hello, welcome back. I'm Reed Smith. I'm Charlie Coast. I'm Asher Maxwell. I'm Ryan Estrin. I'm Gene Herman. And you're listening to 440 Views from the Hill. our predictions uh for 2022 um and the way we're going to do it is uh basically we'll assign a probability to a given statement and then we'll just kind of discuss what we think about it um maybe get into a little bit of arguments about um our predictions so we're going to group these into two first is going to be political predictions about the united states and the next one is going to be international uh political predictions um so we'll just go ahead and get started. The first statement that we'll evaluate is uh, Republicans will retake both houses of Congress in the 2022 midterm elections. Um, I can go first. I think this is incredibly likely. I would give it like uh, 95% probability. I think um, Republicans, is just due to history and due to several factors that have sunk uh, Biden's approval rating, are in a really good spot to take back both houses of Congress. Uh, Ryan? Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think percentages are kind of dumb, but I guess it's also like 90 to 100%. It's it's pretty much going to happen. Yeah, I would agree. Same range as Ryan and Asher. Yeah, same as Gene. Yeah, I think I'd also have to agree, given Biden's current approval rating, definitely going to be like 90 to 95%. Okay. Well, it's, that's shocking. Uh, um, so I guess we'll try to find an area where we could stir up some... some uh, disagreement here what event or what thing do you think biden and democrats could do to improve their chances of taking back congress do you have any ideas literally any progressive measure like more and, and why do you think that? stimulus wages health care like, why why do you because think those poll that? well like i know you're they about to well. say the stupid things about like if people prefer moderation or whatever like i don't i don't agree but like at the end of the day, those things all are right. all things that are generally hey, popular policy. You've got to be a, just a tad bit more professional. No, I'm not going to be. <laughs> I'm keeping this part in, too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, somebody disagree with me? No, nope, I, mean, I 100% I don't, agree. I don't think they'd ever be able to do that. Yeah. So oh, well, yeah, no, because they don't want to do that because they, they have a, none of them support any of that. They well, ultimately, that is just factually inaccurate, Ryan. Like, very few. Like, not only have they gone on the record to, like, the major, the vast majority of Democratic senators and Congress people gone on the record to vote for things like a minimum wage, expanded health care, etc. It, it really only comes down to a few um, members of Congress, and I think everyone knows, like, Manchin and Cinema are the biggest problem. They do kind of yeah, uh, yeah, paper yeah. over a few other senators okay. who are problematic. Yeah, okay. yeah, the I, party the knows that those app, they can use those people as a reason to never pass legislation, so a good 20% of the party... Why would Pelosi... Pelosi you might even support that kind of stuff, but it's people like Chris Coons who can pretend to sign on to them, or even our own like House representatives. Uh, Cooper like literally signed on to like Medicare for All stuff, but he's like, yeah, it'll never actually pass. That's why I signed on for it. He's basically on record of saying that. You can look it up. Uh, like... There's a bunch of people who <sighs> use these small groups of conservative Democrats to, in theory, support legislation that they would never really want to support because they get lobbyist money to not. 
Okay, well, that's actually just not grounded in reality. Yeah, it is. Like, I just explained like, it. This is the definition of a conspiracy theory because it's grounded in nothing except just like radical pessimism about. I just showed you how all those people, they all get tons of money from like the pharmacies industry. People like Jim yeah. Cooper are great examples. Coons is another great example. Delaware is not even a real state. It's like a tax haven. Like, of course, he's going to like support just insane, like can, right, not so you, changing the status yes. quo. Yeah. Reed, what do you think? Okay, so, I mean, I think the Democrats are between a rock and a hard place here. There's really nothing they can do. I, I, I know that's not really an answer, but, I mean, with Manchin and Cinema, they just cannot pass anything that would improve their chances. So, I mean, I agree with Ryan in the sense that they have to pass more progressive Yeah, I agree with that. I think actions, but I, I just don't think they physically can. I think the best thing they could do, at least from the, from the perspective of Biden, is uh, recognize that at this point, legislative action is going to be incredibly difficult to pass. And instead, he should very aggressively yeah. use his executive power um, and, you know, not be afraid to confront the court um, and force them to show their hand uh, as like, the you know, the conservative out of step um, political institution that they are. Uh, he can do all sorts of things, namely like regulations, especially with regards to the climate change and the environment that can do a lot of good um, and really kind of remind the American people what Biden is for and what Democrats are for. And that, I think, would probably be number one. I, I, you know, yeah. historically, it's, it's not necessarily about the mining policy that the Congress passes. It's literally just more about the economy and the greatest economic uh, fear right now is inflation. So anything and everything Biden can do to control inflation is going to be like – Priority number one to improve his chances of winning back Congress. Um, besides that, uh, yeah, I, I think Democrats just need to, to remind the American people what they're for and that they're they're actually doing things. So our next topic is going to be um, similar to the one just before. Well, at least relevant to it. But what are the odds we think Congress will pass some form of Biden's Build Back Better agenda? So just for a little bit of context, um, Manchin has been – pretty uh, obstinate about the fact that he wants the whole Build Back Better negotiations to completely start over. He's unsatisfied with Democrats' current attempt. In my opinion, he's he's a little um, – he, he's a little – well, he's bitter that, uh, that by the fact that he feels that uh, Biden and the, Biden's White House aides have been uh, unfairly characterizing his opposition. And so he has demanded that they restart. Uh, Biden has said that he and Pelosi have said that they still think they can get Build Back Better passed if they split it into smaller chunks of legislation and pass it that way. So uh, the question is, what like how likely is it? Do you think that Congress will pass some form of Biden's Build Back Better agenda? I would put the odds at probably about forty percent. I would probably say like thirty or forty. Yeah, I think it's pretty low that any form gets passed, and any form that would get passed would be heavily trimmed down and passed in like separate bills. Mm. I would say like 15%. Um, I would say like probably 50%. I don't know. Um, I think there just could be major repercussions if they do not, um, which I think, you know, they talk a big game now, but ultimately they're going to cave to some extent. Yeah, I have to agree with Reed. I think there's a chance it will pass, but it won't be the same bill it is now. Like it will be a watered down song. Yeah, that and the, here's the thing is that it's gonna the way if they do break it into smaller chunks, they're gonna have to get Republican support on all of those bills but one, because Democrats are only allowed to pass one reconciliation bill per year, um, which really leaves them only with one opportunity to pass 
uh, a bill along partisan lines. So, you know, that being said, I really think that the only opportunity for passage here is getting some like climate focused legislation with maybe a little bit of healthcare subsidies and childcare expansion passed on a party line vote. It's probably going to be a few months. Uh, it's going to be dragged out even more. And the other thing they have to be conscious of is that once the election season starts, a lot of Congress people are really uncomfortable voting for things. I mean, irrationally, I might add, I really think that's a stupid thing for um, Congress people to, to a stupid position for them to take. Um, but that's something that Democrats are going to have to be conscious of. Yeah, I think you're right. One place that I'll be interested to see if there's any like progress on is Manchin's like come out pretty like his place that he wants to work on is nuclear energy, which is something that a lot of times progressives will be like, no, don't use. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any like debate with Manchin trying to give Manchin something over that. Uh, and just generally like to the forms that anything will pass in this bill, I'm sure that they'll push something that there's a good chance, I think, that they'll push something with sort of this Build Back Better label on it. And it'll be very toned down and have basically a gutted legislation that does very, very little. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. I think we'll move on to our third question. The third uh, prediction is that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe versus Wade. And I would probably put that probability at about 75%. I, I actually think it's pretty low. I'm going to put it at like 20 or 30. And I'll put that with a caveat, which is that I don't think they'll ever actually overturn Roe v. Roe v. Wade. I think it's just like going to continue to do what it's effect- it, It's effectively overturned now. Like states can basically ban almost all abortion. And I think that'll just continue to be where it's still on the like, it's still a case that's not been overturned, but functionally abortion is going to be legal, illegal in like most states that want to make it illegal. So yeah, I might add this, which is that I, I don't know if they're going to like explicitly write you know, we're, we're overturning Roe versus Wade, but I do think they will be very aggressive in overturning all you know functional aspects of the the right to abortion that Roe versus Wade applied, um, and I, I think that's like very likely. Yeah, I, I agree with Ryan. I think it's a pretty low probability, probably around the same same area that Ryan puts it. Yeah, I, I agree, and I don't think they're going to take um, that action necessarily. But the states, uh, I think, are going to continue to. Uh, extra stricter laws. I don't think they're going to overturn it, but they might clarify some points in it and like mm-hmm. try to narrow it in some places. So uh, I'll I'll explain why I feel so opti- or I guess pessimistic is the word, but uh, so confident in my and the, the fact that I think the uh, Supreme Court will functionally return versus Roe versus Wade, which is that. You know, the, this court is ca- is cautious. It doesn't like to make big political statements, especially under Roberts, who cares a lot about the institution. But there are two reasons why I don't think this applies to Roe versus Wade. First of all, is that you know traditionally Ro- Roberts has played the moderating role. He's been the one to sit in the middle and say, "Well, I like actually will rule in, in the moderately conservative way." The issue is that you know Roberts really isn't in control. Because it is now that now that it's a six-three conservative majority on the court, uh, all you know they could get to five with the other conservative justices, and those conservative justices are absolutely behind you know almost completely overturning Roe versus Wade. You know you've got Alito and Thomas who are pretty much going to take the most radically conservative position on every issue. You have Kavanaugh and. Um, and Coney Barrett, who were nominated to the court for the sole purpose of overturning Roe versus Wade. This is their life's work. This is, 
you know, what has really motivated them in conservative law. And then you have Gorsuch, who's almost as conservative as Alito and Thomas. And I can't imagine any one of them flipping or, uh, you know, trying to push a more moderate position. This is uh, their 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 greatest. This is the the, the singular goal they have um, as members of the court. So I think they're going to take it as aggressively as they can. I could actually see Wilbur Kavanaugh and uh, Roberts. Like Kavanaugh's kind of been willing willing to work with Roberts on sort of the institutional legitimacy thing. So in a way that it won't overall, it won't like literally overturn it, but do the thing where it's effectively overturned, I think is what's more likely to happen. But what's, I think a more interesting question to build off of this is like famously when Roe versus Wade decided, like that's a big moment in the conservative movement and sort of how activism happens in the concert and for conservatives, uh, you know, it's what really builds up like, the idea of one more justice, it's this big thing that like conservatives are good at voting on and pushing a lot of pressure on and also definitely politicizing. Do you think the same thing will happen for liberals or not? Well, so here's what you need. Here's the important historical context I think greatly applies to this, which is that the, the anti-Roe movement was really kind of a gradual buildup. So it wasn't like the Supreme Court rules in favor of Roe, and then immediately there's this massive uh, anti-abortion yeah. force in the United States. What really happened was that you know it got overturned, and then kind of slowly the conservative Christian movement was built with the singular you know unifying focus of trying to to change this outcome. And I think it's something similar will happen to liberals. You know, I think uh, you know people and voters especially really only react viscerally to certain issues when they can see it and feel it in their personal lives. And I think that at, you know once Roe's overturned, it's going to be this gradual process of states enacting incredibly restrictive abortion bans, and then uh, women all over the country um, kind of becoming or kind of running into conflict with these bans. And I think that the, the opposition will build slowly, but you know it will probably snowball. And so eventually, I think there will be something equivalent to the uh, conservatives on the lib- on the liberal side. Um, you know, but here's the other thing is that once you hand it over to the states, the liberal states are probably going to maintain access to abortion. So it would really have to be a political movement in conservative states. And, you know, that's where it gets kind of complicated because um, there's there's not much that they could really push for or advocate for if they're surrounded by a bunch of Republicans. I'm a lot more skeptical, I guess, on the idea that this would ever actually create some – movement which is that i think generally liberals kind of sit down and accept whatever the court like decides like generally i think most are way too inclined to accept institutional legitimacy and refuse to challenge it in any capacity which republicans are more willing to go up against which is something that they do well uh which makes me wonder like i think it's harder to see a movement uh, like a left-wing sort of liberal movement that says we need to do some kind of change on this like abortion issue in a world where bro is just totally yeah i i really disagree with that statement i think that the the maybe it appears that way because um for the past few years the the rulings in the court have been moderate to conservative they have not really been as like radically conservative as they could be um and and as a result of that you know liberals maybe have not been as activist and as um, aggressive with their opposition to the court's rulings. But if the court does take a bold stand on the Roe versus Wade issue, I really do think they will activate and light a fire among liberals. You know, let's think about some counterfactuals. What if the court had overturned uh, the ACA? That would have certainly released massive backlash among liberals. Let's say the court had ruled against uh, gay marriage. That really would have lit a fire under um, 
uh, among the liberal people. I just don't think there's any world where the modern – like I think unless you see just like a total takeover by like the Bernie Sanders left of the Democratic Party, which I don't think is going to happen. Uh, I, I don't think there's any world where just like your mainstream like Hillary Clinton style like liberals are like, yeah, the courts are bad and we need to fundamentally challenge them. And you saw a little bit that's, of it. With, that's, that's just but, really ridiculous to say, right? First of all, for a couple of reasons. First no, well, of all, that the Hillary Clinton wing of the party is really into the whole social issues aspect. Like that generally is what fires them up the most, the issues of like equality, especially. Yeah, but they're also the so dedicated to all the institutions of U.S. governance. where I disagree because that is the same part of the party that is pushing aggressively for voting rights legislation that uh, – is passed with abolishing the filibuster. And the filibuster is an institutional part of the U.S. democracy similar to the courts. And, you know, if they are willing to to back off on their faith in the filibuster to back voting rights, they would certainly be willing to back off their, you know, blind faith in the Supreme Court to, to um, advocate for uh, abortion rights. I think you maybe made one good point in there, which is that abortion is what those people care about the most along with other social issues. Like, which is the reason that like they haven't come out for like Jonas or, or Yanis or for yeah, whatever for other uh, labor like issues or other Supreme Court rulings. But I think generally, like the filibuster is an issue that's been a lot more controversial for a longer period of time. I just think it's going to be harder. And to the extent that you might be right that over time this movement could build, it, it, it's sort of a slow burn deal. Is that like I, I just don't see a lot of these people's opinions actually fundamentally changing on the way the court works but i there is also a way where you know this does become the you might have a point in that this does become an issue that could create some kind of counter court activism i think you're just going to have to see where the sort of more institutionalized aspects of the party would be willing to change their position on this and i think it's just under at least biden i don't think we'll ever really like go hard on that i think we'll end that uh discussion there the next question this is the last of the uh, political predictions um, for the United States is, will Manchin leave the Democratic Party in 2022? I would put those odds at about 30%. I would say like 10 or 20. I would say 5%. Yeah, I'm going to go Gene. I, I think it's extremely low. Yeah, I'd also have to agree. going to be extremely low, probably around 5%. So once again, I'm the outlier. Well, you know, I think honestly is that um, – Manchin is feeling gradually uh, more alienated by the Democratic Party, and I do think at some point he is going to pull the trigger, maybe as frustration grows with opposition to build back better, and he's just going to be like, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm going to leave the party um, and become an American independent. Now, he might still caucus with Democrats, which would mean he's functionally a Democrat uh, in the Senate, but I, I – I do think at some point along the line, Manchin will leave the Democratic Party. I, I think, like, how do you think in that world Manchin competes in elections? Because I think that's the main reason why he wouldn't well, leave the Democratic Party, because he would have to run against a Democratic challenger and a Republican challenger in a red state. So, yeah. yeah. First of all, is that you have to understand Manchin is an incredibly arrogant individual. You know, I think everyone everyone who observes him agrees with that. So I think he has believes that you know the reason he wins elections is in spite of not – with the help of the Democratic Party. Um, and I think that's reflected in some of his statements. Now, also is the fact that, you know, his approval rating is twice that of uh, Biden's in West Virginia. So it's not like associating himself with the Democratic Party is doing that much help. On the, the problem of like a Democratic challenger, there are 
are two things that, that I think would give Manchin confidence. First of all is that he beat back his Democratic challenger significantly in 2018. Uh, she was associated with the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. Her, I think her name was like Paula Jean Swearingen. And so that could certainly give him confidence. The other thing is that there are instances where a, a non uh, – or a member of the United States Senate who is a member – well, who's, who caucuses with Democrats but is not a member of the party – has run for office in that um, that state, and the Democratic Party has essentially run a fake ghost candidate and not actually contested it. Now, I think that Manchin might expect Democrats to do the same. So the two examples are Angus King in Maine yeah. and Bernie Sanders in Vermont, where Democrats basically ran a candidate who they knew had no shot, and they just refused to give any institutional backing to that candidate in the hopes that Angus King or Bernie would win because they knew that they are you know functionally Democrats. So maybe Manchin hopes that that happens. Um, but that's that's the reason that, that gives me kind of the confidence to say that I think Manchin is not worried about his the, I think thing the, one, the one thing about the man, like you mentioned Manchin versus Biden's approval rating, I think that also is a reason why he wouldn't like he wouldn't leave because it means that the, like him associating with the Democratic Party is also not hurting him. Even if it's not like helping him, it's not like hurting his chances at election because his approval rating is still high. But I think in that scenario where he has to split with the like democratic candidate there's no way that he's able to win those elections in a state that voted for trump i will say one thing if you go and look at west virginia elections you will notice that manchin has actually faced like not like really legitimate third party challenges but more than most other senators like like a left-wing kind of attempt to try and get a see um which might give him some hope and i also think there's a good chance that just like democrats wouldn't run another candidate if he re- continued to caucus with them but i think gene's ultimately right that he won't um, like there's just no reason for him to leave the party, even if he's fed up with the party. A caucusing outside the party versus in the party, the only difference that does is maybe give him even less leveraging power than he currently has. Is one of the two uh, Democrats who like they need to like get to vote on these very like hard. Issues. Oh, mama, mama, look there! You're shooting our plane in the street again. Don't you know what happened down there? A youth of fourteen got shot down there. The cocaine. Guns jam downtown, the killing clowns of blood money men. So now we're going to move on to our international predictions, and the first one will be: Will Russia invade Ukraine? Uh, let's start with Asher. Asher, do you think this is going to happen? I would say it's it's a complicated issue. Um, you know, I actually think that the odds are pretty low, so I put them at about fifteen percent. I'd put them between, like, 5 and, like, 10 or something. Like, I think it's incredibly low. Russia invading Ukraine? Yeah. Um, 50%. 60, maybe. Very high. I think there'd be a very, very high chance. Um, I don't know exactly percent. Probably probably 70% chance uh, just because Russia wants uh, to claim that territory as their own, uh, as they have in the past. But I think there's definitely a lot of international pressure on them not to, and I think it would really put to test a lot of the U.S.'s own relationships and especially what NATO is and how it will operate. The reason I think that this is unlikely is in part due to how strong of uh, of a response I think President Biden has had. So if you think about – if you put yourself in Putin's shoes, you know, you are a very nationalist person. You you have designs on kind of making Russia a superpower. And what is your greatest threat to that? And it's really – it fundamentally is the economy because, you know, Russia is having – 
a lot of economic problems. Uh, a lot of that is resulting from the price of oil, which, well, first of all, Biden just lowered the price of oil by bullying the OPEC countries into doing so, which is, you know, a thing. Um, but that is probably not good for the Russian economy. And, you know, so as long as the Russian economy is doing well, the Russian people will largely remain um, compliant um, and they won't, you know, resort to social unrest. Um, but I do think that Putin is worried that if the economy does collapse or face problems, uh, that they're that you know he will um, that, there, that there will be social unrest and his power will be threatened. So you know, once, now we've established that Putin's number one goal is the economy. You have to think like, what will the Ukraine issue have an effect on uh, the economy for him? And Biden has said that he will enact severe economic sanctions on Russia, basically cutting them off from the international economy if they invade Russia. So you know that calculation alone has got to scare Putin. Um, significantly and make him really think about this Ukraine decision. You know, I do think the reason I'm maybe more opt- or more uh, more confident in the fact that Russia will invade Ukraine it, um, than some of the other people on the podcast is that I I don't know if Putin finds Biden's threats credible, and I think that Putin will pay severely for that underestimate underestimate. Yeah, I guess I'll go next. I miss just I enjoyed all of Asher's imperialist dogma. I think he's completely wrong. Uh, I think it entirely is because Putin was never going to invade Ukraine. And it's not an issue of, like, the West counterforcing him because he wants it so much. It's that the West is attempting to expand into, uh, like, Ukraine or Russia's, like, border region and Russia has a clear incentive to try and avoid that kind of thing from happening. Russia does not want a Ukraine in NATO or the EU or drawing closer to that is obviously something that directly threatens them. Like Cold War, they had a buffer state. That's something that they've cared about since World War II and even before that. Because for Russia, having a large amount of land is something that's always been a deterrent in terms of like a land war. As well as just like economic access to places like the Black Sea. Like a NATO-controlled Black Sea is obviously a strategic threat for Russia. So the to the extent to which what they're doing is just to try and throw a wedge in between NATO and Russia, or not NATO and Russia, sorry, NATO and Ukraine, in an attempt to, you know, break those two apart and basically separate the negotiations by pissing off both the Ukrainians and the, like, Americans in terms of how they should respond. Um... And sort of with that, I don't think there's ever a chance for Putin to just, like, invade. If you look at the history of how Putin's done things, sure, I agree that his plan that he gave out where he was like, I need to approve people who are joining NATO, no more expansion, like, kick some of the countries out, I think, and no more expansion into the East. Like, that was definitely an overstep. But if you look at how he responded to Georgia, uh, Crimea, uh, not Crimea, oh, well, actually Crimea, is, and um, Chechnya, it was never this, like, announced thing. It was something he just did. And then they invaded. It, this is like a total strategic change for Putin, which is definitely like it's something worth analyzing in terms of that. And it's just not how Putin's historically operated. So I think what Ryan is falling prey to here is this, you know, belief that only the United States can be the irrational imperialists. Uh, Putin is just as incapable incap- of, you know, the strategic mistakes and treaty blunders that Ryan thinks the United States has done. Um, uh, yeah, Putin is just as capable of that. You know, he's just as flawed, and he's just as, he's driven by very similar nationalist ambitions. And so, I think that you know, Ryan might characterize everybody who is in opposition to American imperialism as much more reserved, cautious, and in many ways, you know, um, preferable, I guess, to American imperialism. But I don't you know, think Russian imperialism, possible. like Russia, is. Just as aggressive, if not more, than the United States, certainly. No, they're not. Where have they been just as aggressive as the United States? 
Crimea is, you know, example okay. number one. Yeah, but you have to contextualize Crimea. You're completely ignoring the, the other The context side. is not helpful for, for Georgia, or for... Uh, you mean having a entirely Western control, not only Black Sea economically and militarily. Like, Sevastopol, historically for Russia, is an incredibly important area. Giving that over to the West is obviously a direct threat to Russian national security. While I'm not saying what they did is right, you that, have to contextualize it yes. in a defensive mindset. Yes. So, so right, that right there could be contextualized to, uh, to explain American imperialism just as much. Uh, if you think about, uh, like, the Roosevelt Doctrine and foreign policy where, you know, the America hemisphere is really for the United States jurisdiction, and you think about our actions uh, in like Venezuela or other Latin American countries. I'm not saying what Russia is doing like, is good. I'm just saying that the reason they're doing it is driven by that. By defensive imperialism, you think? It not even yeah. By def- it's not even necessarily that they want the expansion. Like obviously, I agree. Putin probably does want Ukraine. I don't think he ever is going to go through the bother of actually trying to get it, and if it's going to be politically costly, because his whole issue is just preserving like Russia as it currently exists, not making this huge so expansion. So that is where I really disagree. I, I I actually agree with you. I think it's unlikely because he's afraid of the economic like consequences. But Putin has definitely got grand design. Or Putin from. You know, the way he projects his power and his actions speak to the fact that Putin has grand designs on kind of an expanded uh, and a resurrected uh, Soviet Union within Russia. I just like, I think while Putin does like sort of talk that talk, I don't think he'd ever, you know, walk the walk, so to speak, in terms of actually going for that. I think one more thing on this I'd just like to ask is like, should the U.S. get involved in a world where Russia does go like all in? Um, my th- thing about it is no U.S. troops on the ground in Ukraine. I think that we can give Ukraine weapons. I think that we can maybe uh, give them uh, support in any other way we can. And then also my big thing is I think like just hammering Russia with economic sanctions um, could really maybe deter the invasion. I guess one thing I'll say here is my big issue with giving Ukraine guns and arming them, besides the fact that I think that's just like straight up antagonizes Russia – uh, which you can justify as good or bad, and there's definitely more persuasive towards doing that. Is that like if you look where these guns are going and how the what like the CIA is doing in Ukraine? It's training far right neo Nazis to go and fight in the Donbass uh, region against Russia, and these neo Nazis are the ones who like helped do the 2014 uh, revolution because they effectively wanted to establish like. Fascist, a fascist state. If you look into the history of the OUNB, they explicitly worked with the Nazis and committed genocides against Poles, and they still have a lot of influence today. If you've ever seen a red and black, like not diagonally, but straight, like red and black, like flag, that is of a fascist organization. That's very common. You look if you look in like Ukrainian like frontline stuff, as well as coming back to the states and how they're influenced. This is a big deal in Canada more than the U.S. But Ukrainian lobbyists are full of these like super pro-fascists, where we are straight up arming them and training them to fight Russia, which is extremely problematic since these guys actively want to overthrow the current like Ukrainian government. And I think that's a more destabilizing issue than straight up just like allowing them to like, take power. Charlie, you want to hop in on this? I think you guys really touched uh, on a lot of the complex issues. Really? You did, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what what statements really stuck out to you? What about you, Jane? I know you think we should get involved. Well, I mean, I, I kind of agree with Asher, like, no boots on the ground. But I do think, like, assistance to Ukraine to deter Putin. Putin's pretty irrational, but I think that uh, at least having that defense there will, like, send a much better message than Biden saying that a minor incursion wouldn't really be met with that much. Yeah. All right. We will now move on 
to a very similar question that will probably elicit similar emotion on a similar topic in a not so similar region. <clears throat> that topic is: Will China invade Taiwan or make aggressive measures, you know, to try to seize Taiwan? However, you want to take that. Uh, I can go first. I think the odds in 2022 are functionally zero percent. I'd agree they are functionally zero percent. Super low. Um. Yeah, I think I'd agree with Gene here. Charlie? I think I'd also have to agree. So we've already talked about Taiwan as an issue in another episode, uh, but I guess I think we all, the main reason we agree is that, like, there's just no reason that China would specifically do it this year. It would be just, like, pushing for war and, like, consensually, like, causing war with the U.S., which is something they generally don't want. Is that kind of the consensus we all have on this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, China's been pretty, like, aggressive, like, aggressive stance, but they haven't done anything for the past, uh, you know, a while, yeah, long time. Like they're not, they're not planning on doing anything this year. Even if they like, even if later in the year, like they start start making more aggressive statements about Taiwan, it's just the same old, same old where nothing, <laughs> where, where nothing's actually going to happen and no invasion's going to happen because they don't want to risk war with the U.S., who has uh, troops and arms in Taiwan, and yeah. I mean, I think we've already talked about like should we defend and a lot of the issues on Taiwan on that other episode. So if like. Yeah, I think that kind of covers most of the issues that we could talk about here if we want to go to the next section. Unless you want to get into those just a little bit. We can. I, I mean, you know. Let's get into it. Yeah, I would love to get into it. <laughs> so uh, you, why, why should we defend Jin, Taiwan, Jin? Because otherwise China's going to take it because it's the only way that we... I just, like, why it. is, like, the Isle of Formosa worth, like, defense for committing the entire U.S. military to defend this island? Because, because, well, first off, it's not the entire U.S. military to defend... Taiwan, but also... Well, I mean, I'm Taiwan, pretty sure an entire land war in Asia against China would require the entire U.S. military... You also to have to remember there's Japan. Um, yeah, there Which we basically do their entire military because they're constitutionally limited. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's important to maintain Taiwan because Taiwan wants to be an independent state and run separate from China, so I think, like, just leaving them and allowing China to invade would be... Yeah, I agree that, like, Taiwan being independent is good. I just don't think it's, like, worth... Literally, like, a U.S.-China war, which, you know, risks nuclear escalation, or just, well, like, a straight-up full Well, let's, let's, be, let's be clear. I think my point Asia. is that since we don't abandon Taiwan, we don't cause that war. Yeah, I, I think we just kind of... I, I think abandoning maybe, Taiwan... I think abandoning Taiwan, my point is, like, abandoning Taiwan would cause that war, because that would cause the invasion. Yeah, and since my, we, still have, we still have an alliance with Taiwan yeah. in the world where we don't send them arms, send them troops, that causes that war because we get drawn in. Yeah, my only worry with maintaining relations with Taiwan is in the future and sort of how China views Taiwan and how important it is to them. On one hand, you can say, like, there's a lot of stuff that says they'd actually really never go through with it and it's not that important and most of it's just rhetoric. And I find that kind of persuasive. I find that incredibly persuasive. I find that overly persuasive. But on the other hand, like, I do think the sort of, like, China definitely does sort of care about, like, historical land, which Taiwan was... So in that extent, I think that they do have some kind of interest in wanting Taiwan, but I, I think we all sort of agree that the fact that they are more okay with just sort of expanding East Asian hegemony without directly confronting the United States is kind of China's path. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, and I think that's why we should maintain those commitments, because otherwise China doesn't see that strong signal from the U.S. to have them not invade yeah. Taiwan. It doesn't seem like China wants to have a very like aggressive action because then that that doesn't help them. They want to expand via economic means, 
Yeah, so um, the next topic is going to be about China's invasion in the South China Sea. Uh, they've been building islands for a few years now. Um, I guess we're just going to go predictions on what we think will happen with that. I think that's going to continue. I don't think the U.S. is going to take any strong stance on that. Okay, I think there is a very, very high chance that China will keep just doing what they've been doing and expanding their economic influence in the South China Sea and expanding their fishing territory by building islands. I'm just going to speak for Asher and Ryan. Are y'all in agreement? Yeah. Uh, yes. Agree. So, sort of on the South China Sea issue, we all agree that like China is going to expand, but I think I'm going to disagree with everybody else here that like the U.S. should really do a lot to stop them in the South China Sea. And I think my stance is that like as you know, the world comes under all these crises, these, like climate change, we need to stop like overly antagonizing China and work to sort of cooperation. And like ultimately, the South China Sea. Like, the U.S. trying to maintain its trade influence there is, at best, just the same thing as China expanding its influence there. Which, like, obviously neither is necessarily good, but at least that's, like, kind of their territorial waters. Like, the, the U.S. expects to be able to patrol all waters of the world, and then when a country tries to do the same thing, like, regionally, it freaks out. So in a world where, like, you know, climate change is an impending threat and all these issues that China and the U.S. are both facing simultaneously, the the value of defending the South China Sea uh, to prevent, like, China have, from having a few more fishing boats in the region versus, like, preventing climate change, I think, is just vastly outweighed. I, I, I'm a little confused by your point because your, your point is that we shouldn't be antagonistic to China when China's the one that is being antagonistic to well, I sort of and disagree with that. Countries. I think the U.S. is equally, as if not more, antagonistic to China than China is to anyone else. I mean, obviously, I think China wants to pursue regional hegemony, but I mean, every country also wants to pursue. Like, it's just not in countries' natures to pursue regional hegemony, and that's obviously not necessarily a good thing. But the idea that the United States, like, there, we believe that maintaining the status quo where the United States has effective global hegemony is good, but then when another country challenges that to impose its own regional hegemony, like, they're the evil ones. So it's like. Obviously, both sides are bad in this situation, but I don't think just, like, being super, like, having these random conflicts with China over, like, a region that's really not relevant to the United States' interest is a good idea when cooperation with China has so many more benefits. I, I think we go back to Charlie's point here where we talk about definitions. How would you define a conflict over the SCS? I mean, I think it's just antagonizing either engaging in small skirmishes and kind of border wars, but I guess sea wars in the, that extent or just, like, continued antagonistic relationships over the region and, like, sanctions, attack, like, negative, super harsh rhetoric, that kind of stuff. I mean, I kind of understand your point about regional uh, hegemony. The U.S. wants to achieve it. The China also wants to achieve it. But I think, like, your, your idea that China doing this is just for their own regional hegemony is, like, kind of a false, like, idea. Because China's trying to, like, China, through this, China's able to, like, change trade routes, do all of this. It's not just for their, like, their own benefit. They're also, well, it is for their own benefit, but it's not just for their benefit. I guess, like, my issue with any of this is that, like, if you're right about them expanding further, A, why does it, or not, just A, just, like, why does it matter? Like, if the China gains more hegemony, how is that better than U.S. hegemony? Or worse, I mean, sorry. Well, because I think, like, like, let's look at the region that the SCS is in currently. Like, Vietnam, I think we'd all agree, is not necessarily the best country. I think they're one of the better in the region. But, like, Indonesia has just, like, actively done a bunch of genocides. If you look at, like, East Timor and those kind of regions with, like, massive conflicts going on or, like, radical Islamic jihadists that are, like, doing terrorism in that kind of region. Like, there's a lot of major social problems under U.S. hegemony now. 
giving China like more power in the SES, like at best, I don't think anything changes. Mm, I think there are there is a difference between a U.S. hegemony and Chinese hegemony, where China is much more like the way that China is structured and the way that China has acted in the past is much different than how the U.S. acts with their hegemony. I mean, to what extent? Like, in what ways? Well, like, first first off, like, I think that since the U.S. is already the established hegemon, I think that a challenge to that hegemony would be... I think that a challenge to that hegemony would be a problem, causing war. But also, I just think uh, causing war and conflict and causing much worse social issues that you're talking about, I think that that transition, at least, would be much, much, much worse than just the established order as is right now. But I also think that China is not able to run the world the same way the U.S. is, and that China would cause much more problems than the U.S. is right now. I mean, I don't really know how you can cause many more problems than the U.S. does, but, like, I I just don't see a world where, like, any of these points where China somehow... I mean, you might have a point about transition, but I don't see how fundamentally, like, the South China Sea countries, like, the the Philippines, like, Duterte is terrible. Like, I don't see how you get, like, a worse, like global order or any more like unique conflict if the u.s instead focuses on saying okay china we understand east asia is east asia like let's pursue cooperative relations i feel like there's just more benefits to sort of push well, that I, I think i think the idea of pursuing cooperative relations with china is kind of a red herring because i don't think that's something that china wants to achieve i think china wants to achieve hegemony in in east asia but also broadly over the u.s so i think that the idea the idea that we the idea that we could be cooperative with china and have like a joint world order is not i mean possible. i'm pretty sure that the china has china's main interests are not in any way related to like controlling america it's all about like can protect like china's foreign policy has almost always been sort of self-preservational. And to the extent they do expand a little bit, but even if you look at things like their nuclear policies, the way in which they pursued their military, it's fundamentally something that allows them to have structure and influence in the East Asia region, which I think they inevitably will continue to try and expand. And I also just don't think there's anything we can do to stop that, because like ultimately China is just a rising power. Uh, but I just think that China would be more willing to accept sort of certain conditions at least than you're giving them credit for like they are they have shown willingness to work on things like climate or if you look at like how UN votes go typically like China votes with the rest of the world on things like making certain things human rights or not and the US and Israel are the two that are willing to like dissent and like stop things like that China good I wasn't saying China good I think China is bad I just don't think that like there's this it's just to me like a world where China has slightly more influence in East Asia doesn't make a difference. I mean, you say like it's self-preservation, but I think if we view China's attempt to rise as a hegemon as self-preservation, then the U.S. trying to cement its hegemony is also just self-preservation. So I think like that I idea. I think the difference is that the U.S. has continually threatened China's existence, and I think for a lot of in a lot of ways that's like the CCP's main goal is to stop the threat of China existing. But my other issues, I think, like, I think we disagree on how far China really wants to go with their expansion. And finally, just, like, I don't see a world where, like, China expanding in the world order fundamentally creates, like, a more unstable world than it currently is. Like, I think the biggest argument you have on your side is, like, India. But that's, India is already already incredibly antagonistic towards China in the Kashmir region. So I don't think that could get any worse. Like, I I just don't see a world where, like, these relations fundamentally shift. Well, I I think the transition is a huge problem. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't feel like... I mean, I think you need to expand on, like, what parts of the transition become super problematic in East Asia. Well, I mean, when when China's trying to expand into areas where U.S. allies have leverage and have... Or where the U.S. has leverage over, over certain countries, I think those that causes conflicts between the U.S. and China in those areas. I think this is just, like, coming from a fundamental disagreement we have, which I don't think the U.S.'s role should be... To be in East Asia, like fundamentally, that is not our region. That's not our place. No, I, I I understand that's your point, but the U.S. is in East Asia. Yeah, and I think that's wrong, and I don't think we should be. I, I yes, okay, I understand that's your point, but the problem is that the U.S. is in East Asia. Yeah, that's a fact. Yeah, and I think that a rising China in East Asia causes conflict with the U.S. in that area. I think we okay, we both agree on that point. This comes from a difference on what the U.S. versus China should do. You, your response is that the U.S. should maintain its course to try and like prevent China from continuing to do these. My stance is that the U.S. should soften its position and push for more cooperative bilateral ties, which I believe China would be more willing to accept than you're giving them credit for. I mean, I guess it, I, I guess it's more of a disagreement about what we think like China would be willing to accept. Yeah, I think fundamentally that's just what we're not going to agree on. Remember Lenny in the days before, before the army came. Please remember Victor Hara in the Santiago Stadium. That concludes this episode of 440 Views from the Hill. Stay tuned for new episodes in the upcoming weeks. We would like to give special thanks to Mr. Joshua Clark for sponsoring this independent study and Jack Keller for our theme music. Thanks for listening and see you next time.